everyone. Welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery podcast. I am Michael Gervais, where we're going to have conversations with people who are on the path of mastery. And it's the process of learning where the stuff that was once difficult has become easy for folks or easier and maybe even artistically enjoyable. And the goal of these conversations is to identify not only their psychological framework, which is really how they see themselves or how they understand how the world works, but also to get into their robust and sturdy practices that have led them to be able to explore and whether it's their potential or even as coaches, the potential of others. The essence, the hope here is that we're going to provide all of us with ways that we can uh, train our mind and our craft in a similar fashion to some of the best in the world or people that are exceptional at either their understanding or their ability to do. And the ultimate goal is to is to not follow what these men and women have done, but rather to work towards understanding what they were searching for, where hopefully we can also seek for the same. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash finding mastery and enter the code finding mastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubs naturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash finding mastery with the code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by hymns. Hymns is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why HIMSS has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out HIMSS. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash finding mastery that's hymns h-i-m-s dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options hymns.com slash finding mastery prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate restrictions apply 
See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And so this episode is with Ashley Merriman. And Ashley spent her professional career looking to understand and translate the applications of science as it relates to helping others become better or maybe even the best. She's been hung- hungry her whole life um, to learn. And oddly enough, she's, she's followed, maybe strike that, not oddly enough, she's followed a very unique path. And it's akin to most people that we've had on these conversations, which is she started off wanting to understand film. So she got a degree from USC in the cinematic arts. And then she shifted gears and became an attorney. And she received her Juris Doctorate degree from Georgetown University. And she's done things as uh, far out as being a speechwriter for uh, folks on the Clinton campaign, as well as um, not only campaign, sorry, the administration, Clinton administration, as as well as being able to um, help children in Los Angeles for a long time on how to apply the science that she's curated for them to have better lives. So she's on the spectrum of, you know, political leaders, as well as giving back and giving to um, folks that wouldn't have access to the information that she's been able to curate. So she's now turned her thirst to understand into two New York Times bestsellers, Nurture Shock and the book that grabbed my attention first with her was called Top Dog. And in Top Dog, also written with Pope Bronson, it's the science of winning and losing. And what she's done is she's curated relevant research to the science of competition. And obviously, that's an important word for all of us. And what she's done is she's understood um, the science about world-class performers and how those insights relate to even our children and parenting and leadership. So lately, she's been zigzagging all across the country. Uh, We both live in Los Angeles, and we still weren't able to find a time to sit in person. So uh, what I've learned from some of these Skype conversations or is that it's not, there's sometimes a delay and a drag in uh, in the actual conversation. It sounds like somebody has been, I don't know, uh, they're just a little tired. But it, So uh, excuse the lag and the, the time delay here, but this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was easy. Um, and she's been all over the country, you know, talking about the science of competition and the application of it. And everywhere from Charlie Rose to HBO Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, like she's doing this on a pretty, pretty cool clip here. And what I hope you'll get from this conversation is the value of curiosity um, and and what she's come to understand by being curious and how she's followed that as far as she possibly can go to curate some very difficult stuff. The science of competition and the neurochemistry around it and the socialization and the gender biases. This is not easy stuff. And she hits it head on and she's got a crisp point of view also i hope that the courage required to do difficult things and that's a a theme that has that comes through this conversation as well and what that really means is the risk of looking bad and how crippling that can be and how crippling it was for her at one point in her time and then she made a decision and she made that decision to look bad it's okay to look bad at the cost of potentially not getting the thing that she wanted which is deep understanding and it's great it's wonderful and the insights for parents and leaders on how they can help others go for it they're just riddled throughout here so she hits another really hot button which is the word competition and what it means across uh, different genders 
And she talks about, you know, the cooperation and competition are not odds with each other. They actually can work in harmony. And she highlights the research that um, across genders where competition and risk, how women are good at calculating the odds of risk and men ignore the odds. And and just understanding those difference can be an incredible asset in a team development. However, that being said, that competition is not a gender issue, if you will. Competition is a process of becoming. It's a process of improvement. It's a process of getting better and progressing at something. And But the tone in which we talk about that, um, the words that we use can spark different um, responses across different genders. So it's a great insight on that. We get into the neurochemistry around competition and the idea of socializing great talent, how it's a misnomer just to put a bunch of really switched on people in a room and think that they'll be able to create an elite team. She talks about how the importance of for people to be part of something bigger than themselves. And it's great. Okay. So um, the last part that I think you'll enjoy is her point of view on uh, the trophy industrial complex, as she calls it. And she's got a rich point of view about how kids should not be getting trophies. No, strike that. <laughs> she, uh, her point of view is that not all kids should be getting trophies. It's not how the world works. So she gets fired up about that conversation. So I'd love to hear your comments on it and where you stand on, on that conversation. Um, so let's just jump right into her path. It's led her to now and where she wants to go and what's next for her. And, you know, the, the psychological framework that she operates on and the mental skills that she uses and has come to be valuable uh, in her understanding of how world-class competitors do what they do. Okay. Um, if you're interested in um, talking to her directly, hit her on Ashley Merriman uh, on Twitter and uh, let's just kind of keep that conversation rolling. She'll love it. She'll she'll um, be a direct response right back to you. So let's learn um, from how some of the best in the world understand the science and the application of competition. Ashley, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> um, this has been a long time coming. And so in advance, I want to, um, I, th I think maybe it's, Partly both of us have to apologize for our schedules just zigging and zagging. And I know you're all over the country. And so um, I'm, I'm fired up to have this a deeper conversation with you about the science of competition and what you've been able to learn from your research and also want to be able to understand uh, what led you to this conversation and this, the depth of research you have around the science of competition. And then also, I'm a geek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer for all of why I know stuff is just because I'm an insatiable geek and my, my idea of fun stuff is sitting, learning and reading stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are curious, that's for sure. But you also have like what I've appreciated about knowing you is that you have a, um, a point of view and it's a crisp point of view. And so I think that what we're going to be able to do today is um, hopefully – you know, we'll have a conversation about exactly what you understand, what you don't know, and then um, more importantly, maybe the path that led you here and the skills that you've honed to be able to really have a credible, crisp, and, and deep voice around competition and the science of it. Okie doke. <laughs> I usually feel like I'm the least interesting thing I know about. <laughs> uh, you know, we can go on the science and I'll do as much as I, how I apply and what I learn from it, but... 
mostly on a personal level, I just go, wow, I need to do so much better. You know what? I really appreciate that because um, (laughs) I will nod my head to the same thing, that there's so much more to know. And I think that this is one of the maybe afflictions or ailments of curious people is that there's a deep understanding that there's a lot more to know. Yeah. Just every time I think I start to get it, I go, oh, I really don't get it. Um, But actually kind of like that because I think we've men- I've mentioned it when we've talked before just hanging out that I'm always so struck that the elite want to get better I mean they just always want to get better the good and I mean the good I mean we're talking world-class good right but you you ask them hey did you want to read this book do you want to have this meeting do you want to have to hear this idea and their response is oh I'm good I'm good. And, and they really are good, but that's where they stay. And it's kind of fascinating to me, whereas, you know, the elite just say, let me clear my calendar. There's some new idea. There's some new book. And halfway before hearing about that, they want to know what the next one after that is. Well, so that just inspires me more to that there is so much more I need to learn and that I can't get comfortable or settle and that every day I should be learning more. Is that one of the characteristics or traits that you found from people that are... You know, there's a difference between good, elite, uh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, good, excellent, and elite. You know, right. there's something very special about people that, um, well, uh, well, the phrase that you and I would use on this conversation would be masters of craft, is that they're so hungry to learn and they're deeply invested in the 1% margins. Have, mm-hmm. have you found the same? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, and it was, it's interesting. I was at a conference and David Marsh, who's the um, swim mac coach who just became the women's Olympic coach, was talking about how, you know, well, there's elite and then there's world class. <laughs> and I was reading a study recently comparing, uh, I think it was members of a national biathlete team. And researchers writing about that study talked about the elite and the near elite. But they were Olympians. They were already the national team. And even within their... Well, there's, you know, can you imagine, hey, mom, I'm a near elite Olympian. I've almost made it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm the two best in the world. No, I'm the, no, I'm the two best in the country, but uh, I'm, I'm eighth in the world and I'm near elite. I'm, I'm near elite. I've got, to, I know where I need to go though. Yeah. The, the way that I think about that phrase is that there's something important about sustainability and being able to sustain superior or elite or world-class performance uh, is some, it, that's what puts perks my antenna quite a bit is like how do you repeat it and do it again and again and maybe it was lucky maybe not if there's this thing that we can point to that has some sort of uh, rugged practice underneath of it that allows people to uh, excel inside of a particular psychological framework or ecosystem that they're in and that's what I'm hoping to learn from you (laughs) well you know I don't think it's luck I, I think people might modestly say, well, I'm lucky there are other people who are good out there. Um, but I think that it, it, there is that sort of insatiable quest to be better. Did you, always and, have, did you always have this as a kid? Did you have that kind of curiosity? Were you were the one reading the back of the, the – I'm sharing a little bit too much about me, but reading, <laughs> reading the back of the – We're, we're going to be like that, huh? Okay, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm good at that. I, I found myself at the kitchen table like – just wanting to read everything that was in front of me, whether it was the back of a uh, cereal box or it was the, uh, you know, whatever pamphlets were laying around. I just wanted to understand that thing. And so 
When you said nerd, that's that's how I did. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think I have since we're gonna we're gonna go there. My equivalent. I don't remember how old I was. I started reading when I was two and a half or three, I guess. And my mom read at the time. Now I I didn't know what they were. I just knew they were big books. And um, I think now they were you know really trashy bodice ripper historical mysteries or novels or something. But I didn't know. And I would stand behind her and read over her shoulder. Until I didn't see, until I, there was a word that I didn't know. And then this little tiny hand would shoot over her shoulder. What's that word, Bobby? She'd be like, ah! Oh, that's too much. Really? Oh, my gosh. And I have no idea what those words. Now I'm like, oh, I read, there's a, probably a reason I didn't know those words. My mom always like, don't do that. And I'd be like, okay, mommy. And then a week or two later, I would do it again. <laughs> you know, there's this idea that I play with. Um, I think I don't think it's shooting to me, but there's a couple variables that that snap into place for people that are able to ex- explore potential in the world stage or be world-class or even be great at the thing that they're pursuing is one, they've matched their environment with their genetic coding. So they understood their genetic coding somehow. And for you, maybe it's like you loved reading. And then so, so the matching of the ecosystem would be, okay, where are the environments that support me, like my reading, my appetite, my cessation for learning and system. No, that's not the right word. My, not cessation. That would be my stopping of learning. What's the word I'm looking for? My hunger for learning. That, that's okay. Not, it's that's some not version the, of satiation. Satiation. But, but, no, but, that's, but there's still kind of an ending in that. Yeah, so. I know. Yeah. Anyways, um, so like that hunger for it. So matching your genetic coding with the ecosystem, and then the thing that pulls it out of us is great coaches, people that care, and our ability to work hard because doing things at the world-class stage are, is hard. And w- I, I'm curious, um, before we jump into your kind of really crisp point of view on the science of competition. Stuff I actually know about. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, do, do, you have a, do you have a quick thought on, the, on those three variables or four variables, I should say? Well, one of my um, other random skills is I'm a lawyer and you learn in law school, the answer is always, it depends. And I think that answer you know, serves pretty well when you're talking about science reporting. I think we definitely under, underestimate environment and its effects. Well, and, and at the moment, we're talking about environment writ big, right? It could be today is this alternately clear and beautiful and overcast and weird, scary day here in, in L.A., but it also is about family environment and cultural and education background. So it's written broadly. And then, you know, the gene environment interaction is most of the research now finds it's not just one generation, it's multi-generational, right? What my great-grandmother ate for breakfast changes my genetic response to stress, um, which I find mind-blowing. Isn't epigenetics like... I don't know. I'm so, I'm so interested in in epigenetics. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So let's do this. Let's before we get into your, um, I don't know the the part of the conversation I'm really excited about. Bring us into speed on how you got here. Okay. So you were a, a early learner, but where did you first set know that you were kind of interested or on this course of deep understanding? And the, or I'm saying like in a way like kind of self-serving, like this process of mastery that you're interested in. 
I don't know. I guess it, I always have been. It's kind of hard to say no. I mean, I, no one believes this. We're really oversharing, right? <laughs> yeah, you're going to edit all this out, right? Of no? course not. It's just the two of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, if no one's listening. Um, no one believes me, but especially unless you knew me when I was a kid, but I was painfully shy. And I would sit there in class and I would, and the teacher would explain some math concept on the board or something and I didn't understand or there was something I wanted. I just wanted to know the answer. And I remember vividly, even through middle school, high school, thinking, you have a choice. You can sit here and not talk and have no one notice you and not know the answer or you can know the answer. And I thought it was more important to know the answer than it was to get to not talk and be shy. Okay, so the decision was that either you could go learn and and come up and to understand the answer, or you could just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, and be the shy wallflower who no one noticed. Yeah. Okay. And if I talked out loud, that was a risk, right? Because if I maybe my maybe my question was stupid, or I would get nervous and I would stammer because I was nervous. And so, and if you ask a question, if you raise your hand, people pay attention to you. So yeah, it was a question of, are you willing to sort of sacrifice the anonymity of never talking and hiding? Um, or, you know, which is more important, being shy, being quiet, or knowing the answer? And I realized knowing the answer was way more important to me. <laughs> oh, okay, so that I, I thought those were different vectors. So, I, okay, no, But you're on the same story. vector, which is yeah. either... So the, what I heard, what I'm hearing now is either don't say anything, but I don't get to learn. Right. And the reason you wouldn't say anything is because you need to take a risk or put your hand up, say something, maybe get it wrong, maybe get it right, but ask a question. And the risk was that people would look at you. Or they would acknowledge my existence. Yes. <laughs> was that, so is that statement out of. I was just super shy and I, yeah, I was just super shy. But what you just said, like acknowledge my existence, was that out of. Yeah. Some some sort of pain that, like, it was painful to acknowledge that you existed, or was that out of um, no? I was just an introvert, and I, I like the public. The public raising of hand was not a skill I had. Um, I, I think it was more yes, being very much of an introvert. Um, I'm an only child, children of only child children, so. Yeah, I was just, you know, really shy and, you know, quite happy not talking. <laughs> Although I always also, you know, I, I guess I have a slightly bipolar existence because in my free time I loved to sing and couldn't wait until I was old enough to start auditioning for plays when I was a kid. So, so I, I would audition and I would be in plays, but... You know, in class, you wouldn't, I wouldn't talk. <laughs> I would never know that you're an no introvert. I would, yeah, there's not a chance I would think you're an introvert. Even, and I don't think anyone listening here would say, yeah, it sounds like an introvert. Ambervert, ambervert. <laughs> yeah. well, I think it's still the case. I mean, I, I mean, if you think about my work environment now, I'm off giving a speech or I'm going to talk to someone or I'm calling someone inter- interviewing a scientist or I'm sitting on my couch reading 2,000 pages of documents and I'm not saying a word to anyone. I'm just writing notes and thinking thoughts. And so I, I still think in some ways 
you know, I can have that super quiet, introverted aspect of, you know, my existence, my brain is still there. Uh, but again, you know, even when I say, oh, I'd really rather just stay home and read stuff. But, you know, that means miss the opportunity to meet you, to meet someone else, mm-hmm. hear what they're doing. No, I, I, it's the, still the same process, which is more important to me, being home and reading and just getting some stuff done or learning something. I love it. I think that you're on to something like the, the center of what you're talking about right now is that I've got two thoughts. The first is that I'm not sure that enough people have a clear understanding of the difference between introversion and extroversion and introversion according to Carl Jung the kind of the originator of this concept was that they just that doesn't mean shy it just means they gather their energy from within and they'd prefer to listen and observe and make sense of things before they speak and extroverts the, the reason the way that you know an extrovert's an extrovert is cuz they're thinking while they're talking and that's how that they're right. So while they're using their their mouth mm-hmm. and their lips are moving, that's how they're thinking. And they'll change their mind four or five times, extrovertedly so. And it drives the introvert crazy because it's <laughs> this, right, yeah. So you the way you gather information is by being by yourself, paying attention, deeply listening to other people, and then um, doing an exercise, an internal exercise to get clarity. Where an extrovert's do the outside, but what you're talking that the, the yeah, so the essence of what we're talking about, though, is this risk management that you had at a young age. And Still do. <laughs> yeah, so, so Carl Jung, go back to his idea, was that we're born naturally introverted or extroverted. The world values extroversion. So for an introvert to uh, feel potent and powerful or efficacious within themselves would be for them to embrace that organize their life where they can exercise the introverted process, but also flip the switch, right? Like it's a toggle between introversion and extroversion that we can flip the switch and access extroversion when it's required to. Well, I mean, they've done studies where they've actually instructed introverts to act extroverted. And over time, they actually go higher on the extroversion scale. So um, I think that they're definitely you know, biological factors, early life experiences that are going to push you one direction or another. But in some ways, they're also learned skills. Okay. And so on that, the biological and... Invi- okay, so who who shaped your life? So you're now... You're, you're In my mind, you're one of the leading experts in understanding the science of competition. You know, you wrote a book. You did You did the, lar- the long, long I've, book I've on been, I've been joking with people. You know, I wrote the book on that. Yeah, I know. You did. <laughs> so, okay. So who shaped you or what was the... In- what what was the early experiences or events that shaped you? Um, how early are we talking about? Yeah, what, was, yeah whatever. <laughs> th- one, three, two, three things that come come to mind. Saying, Stop reading over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I I think it's a lot of I think it's a lot of things. It's hard to pick one particular person or event. Um, and, and the ones that I could say in some way don't necessarily make sense. I, um, like a lot of children of the 70s, was obsessed with Star Wars. And my uncle gave me a copy of American Film Magazine. This was in, I think, around like October of 1979 or something. And I was eight. 
And he said, hey, there's an article about George Lucas in the American Film Magazine. I'd never heard of the magazine, but I heard of George Lucas. And in the middle of the article, it said that he'd gone to USC Film School. So I, put the art- I, read- I finished the article and I said, mom, I'm going to USC Film School. She said, what? And I said, for college, I'm going to USC Film School. And she said, okay. And 10 years later, I went to USC Film School. So... Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with their co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery, or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. That I mean, the idea of putting some words to ideas has been a skill that you've had, and I, maybe some some folks listening can 
you know, get their arms around this is that when you can put some language or, or images to ideas that you have, something happens. I, I have no idea what it is. But this concept of having a vision or a mission, it keeps coming up with folks. And it sounds like you had it. But then, so then you went, so you had that, and then you went to school at SC for that, and then shift gears for law, which seems to be a total different vector. Well, I, I can tell you the big picture now it makes sense story. Okay. At the time, I couldn't have explained it to you either. Um, I think that what drives me is that act of communication, of explaining an idea, finding the facts and the evidence to make sure that I'm right. If I'm not, change and figure out what I'm missing. But to come up with that idea and then distill those ideas into language that reaches in the most effective way that the audience that I'm writing for. So that might be a play, an essay for the New York Times. It may be a speech. It might be a book or magazine article, you know, fiction, nonfiction, you know, a legal brief for the court. It's still about the same idea of what are, what are the facts? What are the arguments and making it make sense and it's just the context that changes. So if you think of it that way, then, then things I've done make sense. If, at the time, though, <laughs> I, I worked I, in 1992. I, uh, my career and my burgeoning career in Hollywood took a literal turn as I threw everything I owned in my car and I drove to Little Rock, Arkansas to work on the Clinton campaign. Uh, and when I did that, it was still another year or so, but I, um, I, I first moved back to LA, and then I'm like, no, I think I need to do this this government thing. This I don't think my work there is done yet. So in my free time, I went to law school <laughs> when I was when I was working at the Clinton administration. Wow. So you, okay, from an early age, I didn't hit on this thought for you, but that idea that you're going to take a risk and mm-hmm. and you knew that, you didn't know what introversion was but you called it shyness when you're a kid but that you're going to take There's a probably risk probably social anxiety there too but yeah okay so you're <laughs> going to but you but you made this decision that it was more important for you to go for it mm-hmm. than to not have that thing you wanted which was to understand so you took a risk it's right. i didn't know this about you but it sounds like you are a risk taker right and then a hard worker on top of it that's really curious about one thing which is I, I, understanding something deeply. Yeah, you know, I still, I'm trying to actually get better about it, but I actually think in terms of risk-taking, on the day-to-day, I'm still a shy, pretty boring homebody who's, my, the big excitement today is deciding what yarn I'm going to use to start crocheting for Christmas presents. Um, and I'm very stressed out about what if I pick the yarn? The fact that no one will like it. Yeah, the fact that um, you're mentioning Christmas in <laughs> November 1st is freaking me out. Uh, well, usually I actually buy Christmas presents all year. Everywhere I go, I go cr- Christmas shopping so that I've, I'm done by November because I'm buying souvenirs for people and it's kind of more fun than just going to a mall. Um, but, but so anyway, so on a day-to-day, I kind of feel like I'm still risk-averse. Um, I take big risks. I don't seem to do very much in the middle. I, I take no risks or I take big risks. So big risk, pile everything in your car, call mom. Hey, mom, you probably won't reach me for a couple of days. And she said, why? I said, because I'm driving to Arkansas. She said, what? So I'm going to move to Arkansas to work on the Clinton Court campaign. <laughs> Swear to God, that's what happened. Um, 
So I take big risks. Mm. And, you know, trying to write something, um, just sort of trusting that things would work, going in a new direction in terms of an idea. But I, I don't think I'm, I'm still, I don't think I'm that good day-to-day risk. I'm trying to be better. I think that I would benefit from that. Do you value risk-taking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you I, do value I, it. Okay. And, and, and I'm... And I'm in awe of people who are better at it than I am, which isn't too hard. But I, I, people who really take risks all the time, I, yeah, I think they're awesome. <laughs> it, it is wonderful, isn't it? And there's a balance, right, between and, neurochemistry, genetic coding, as well as a skill. And, we and can, gender. And, and gender. We can practice this, though. There's a lot about learning about risk-taking. And I winning know. Life. Isn't that wild that there's a gender difference as well? Oh, and I love that so much. I know. It's, it's, when I first came across that, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Well, so can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, let's, that okay? yeah let's do that. Um, so and my, my disclaimer that I always have to say when I talk about gender differences is that, you know, Poe and I said, well, you know, we're going to write this book about competition. and Poe po Bronson. Poe Bronson. And he asked, well, hey, do you think we should write about gender differences? And... I'm the girl. So I immediately said no. <laughs> and, and I win because I'm the girl and it's about gender differences. And, and I just, I didn't want people to hold up top dog and say, you know, the reason women are running the world or wall street or Silicon Valley or more women aren't in office is because they can't compete. Did you read top dog? I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. And also when we, when we were writing nurture shock, we came across gender differences, you know, pretty regularly in the data, but it would be maybe like a two or three percent difference in the variance, which if you were talking, yes, it's statistically significant, blah, 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 blah. But in terms of meaningful significance, comparing one individual to the next, it became meaningless. So, I mean, the best example is to say it's true that men have stronger upper body strength than women. But if I say that and I'm standing next to Serena or Venus, I'm an idiot, right? Because it's just not applying to them. So, so that was sort of, you know, how I felt about the gender differences going in because they were just such small differences that I, I thought they'd be a distraction. And it really wasn't until we found the research of Muriel Niederla at Stanford who asked men and women in the lab, do you want to compete or not? And like 70, 70 plus percent of the guys said game on and 30% of the women said yes. You know, 40% <laughs> is pretty, that's not just some random deviation. And what she found, and people have, you know, worked on and talked about her work before, but I think they just, they, they got it wrong because they said, well, women can't compete. Women don't want to compete. But if you think about the tasks, she didn't say anything about how well you compete. It was all a decision, do you want to? And what we realized from her work and the works of political scientists and others is that women are really good at calculating their odds of success and men are really good at ignoring them. And you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually writing it down because <laughs> I've forgotten this part, calculating odds. But, yeah. but it's really, you know, and it's constantly that sort of that question, am I going to win? And that women 
just refuse to participate if they don't think they're going to win. And guys just sort of go, yeah, I think I got this. And they jump in. And for me personally, going back to sort of that risk idea, the calculating, is this worth doing? Am I going to be successful? What would happen if I'm not? It's definitely something that has been a factor. And so it is one of the things that I've been trying to be as myself, my N of one, more willing to take risks and be less concerned with the outcome and thinking, what am I going to learn from this experience? Because if I'm going to learn something, the fact that it doesn't actually play out and I'm not successful in the task can be irrelevant. So I've just got to focus on what I can learn from the experience. Yeah. And there's, a, there's an entire social construct around the word competition and what it means at a young age for boys and girls at that age. And then if you layer on top of it, what competition means for most people, whether gender not included in this part of the conversation is that if we look at the original definition of competition, you you and I think you and I've talked about this before, that it's about cooperation. It's about striving together with people to pursue something together. And if you looked it up right now, uh, the, the American idea around this is to compete against, to work against another unit. And so when you think about um, what competition means for genders, now if we add, add the gender uh, mm-hmm. piece right back onto it, the idea is that, no, 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 uh, I'm not sure that I, it feels great to, to tear down other people. And I think that that's true for both genders. I think that both genders are not interested in tearing others down. There are certainly apex predators Mm -hmm. in our world, you know, wolves, if you will. There are those. And I'm glad I know them and I'm glad I understand them. And because there's (laughs) there's a place for them as well. But at the same time, I think most people are not wolves or apex predators. There are alpha competitors that are different than predators. And so there's a little tonality difference about what that word actually means. If we go back to the origin, let's strive together. Let's figure something out together. Let's embrace and and love the people on the other side of the fence or the other side of the the pitch, whatever it is that we're doing, that there's something that's more um, appealing to that. Yeah, I I wonder if you can bounce off that a little bit. Well, I definitely... It sort of drives me crazy when people say, you know, competition so last century... (laughs) and and it's just it's a false choice between competition and cooperation you and i can work together on a project but want to win we want to beat the other guys who are working on their project and but even amongst competitors if you and i are competing against each other but we've agreed on a forum and a conduct of behavior and what is it that we both need to do to be who's going to be successful We've still cooperated, right? Because we're laying out those ground rules. So I just think it's a false choice when people are talking about it's, you know, a dog-eat-dog world or we're all singing, you know, kumbaya. And neither of those are true. No, that's, that, that's why I use the word predator because mm-hmm. that's a zero-sum game. And, I, okay, if we, get, if we go down a deep dive on game theory right now and the mathematics and economics of game theory, the, 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 the logic and theory around that – most competitions are zero-sum games, but meaning winner takes all. But war is the ultimate winner takes all, mm-hmm. right? Because it's land and opportunity and, and life that is on the line. But for for games where we're agreeing on the construct, it's not winner take all. 
like football, like basketball, like baseball. It's not winner take all. They do take the prize, which is money and recognition, but it's not like a zero sum. Um, yeah, I mean, that was actually, you know, one of the first things that sort of was a, in my own mind, how I had to sort of re-understand what competition was, was realizing that the benefit of competition isn't the win. There you go. The, the benefit of competition is improvement. It's the striving. And, it's the progression. It's well, the it's, sharpening. Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah it's, we're both- it's improvement, and, but it's interesting. It, it's twofold. It's improvement in the moment. We opened Top Dog with this description of Jason Lezak in the Beijing Olympics and this amazing, famous come-from-behind victory so that he wins, so that the American can win the relay, so Michael Phelps gets, uh, beats Mark Spitz's record, blah, 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 blah. And all of that's awesome. And I, you know, Jason's amazing. But f- five of the eight teams beat the world record that day. I mean, the idea, and, and to me, I always think, the fifth team didn't go home with a world record, but they did something no one in the world had done before. And the fact that other people were doing it at the same time as them doesn't take away from their achievement. If anything, it just probably helped catalyze the fact they were there. But the next time they get in a pool, their expectation of what is possible has changed. So in the moment, competition helps you and improves your performance because you're also seeing what someone else does. And if you see what someone else does, it's not about tearing them down. It's about saying, oh, well, if they're doing that, am I doing better? Am I doing worse? Am I, is there more I can do? And I just didn't even realize. And, but then competition improves over time because with practice, you start realizing, oh, hey, I get tired at this point or this kind of thing frustrates me or I'm better in this kind of circumstance and how do I prepare for it? So it's both in the moment and competing over time. They both ultimately end up giving you that lesson and improvement. Yeah, I love it. Um, I, I don't think we talk enough about scaffolding, right? Mm-hmm. Like being an architect and scaffolding. And, and so scaffolding is this concept of being able to build on the already existing framework. And I know that um, that's a big part of this conversation. These podcasts are really like what is the psychological framework you have as a a uh, person who has a deep point of view about competition from a research standpoint, as well as living it, like competing to be your best, competing to be an extrovert maybe from a young age is something <laughs> you were doing. <laughs> right? You know, so, and, and if you hear, yeah, and if you hear great competitors, they talk about, it doesn't just stop on the pitch. Like I want to compete to be the best version of me around other people that are trying to do the same. And then the highest level feels like, can we compete together? And when you get a bunch of alpha competitors in a room and asking them to work together, it's not easy. That it, it, unless there's a mission or, or something larger than them that they can hook onto. And that's this idea of scaffolding. While something's happening that's amazing in the competitive environment, can I put that eloquently into my scaffolding? Can I add it rather than ignore it? Because there could be something deep that you could learn from seeing somebody else take a risk or work a different backhand or, you know, do something different on, on, on a bottom turn on a wave, whatever the sport might be. Uh, well, my favorite example of that is Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte. There you because, go. Yeah. because when Phelps announces his retirement, people ask, you know, Ryan, well, what do you think? And, you know, they, I guess they were expecting the, well, more medals for me response, but instead they were like, he was like, yeah, I don't buy it. He's going to come back and, 
he makes me swim better. And Phelps came back, and I was actually at Nationals, the first um, competition, both of them was a return. And one of them won, and they said, hey, what's this rivalry? And they both were like, he makes me swim better. So I think that, you know, having that challenge is absolutely true. If you're talking more in the in terms of getting a team of stars together. I think that's a different challenge, but that you're right. The research is pretty clear that just putting a bunch of experts in a room and letting them do stuff and expect spectacular results, no, they're just gonna start throwing knives at each other pretty quickly. Uh, But if you give them a purpose, if you give them a, a structure and a mission, then they end up being able to do then they do the spectacular things that they were doing. But they need that guidance and they need that singular vision, um, especially if you've got really talented people because they already have a vision that they're bringing in. For and themselves. Need, well, and for the idea, you know, for the purpose. I mean, uh, the TV show, your show of shows. I mean, if you look at the cast, each one of them is this unbelievable, life-changing, world-changing cultural phenomenon. But then you throw them in a room and they're supposed to all work together. Well, it took a perspective to say, no, this is what the show is about and this is what we're doing. You can do that other stuff other places, but this is what we're doing. And they would fight and they would argue, but at a certain point they had that, that established vision. So I think that's, and especially if you're starting off with an, a, a ready a, elite talent, it's really important to give them that vision because then they also realize there's a reason to be there. Okay, so... Um- why is I don't comp- know if that makes sense. It does. Um, <laughs> well, I think, and I think you're, well, I think you're on our nodding our heads to the same thing that when people can hook into something that's bigger, it gives them um, a reason to rely and trust other people who, um, exactly. to, to, to do something together. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the point because if you're, if you're an elite athlete, you know, if you're uh, terrific at throwing the football, you can throw it down the field as far as you possibly can, but there's no one to catch it. So, yeah, but you can do more on a team, mm-hmm. right? If you want to just throw things by yourself, there's this sport called javelin throwing, and no one needs to catch it, right? But if you want to do more, then the team environment is where you need to go. But you have to explain to people that that context and the communal effort is going to get them more than they would get on their own. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. It's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. So what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up, and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. 
AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code Finding Mastery at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Um, why, why compete? Why is competition important? Like if we, if we strip it down, and, and then from that, maybe you can uh, teach us your findings from the, uh, a neuroscience and a neurochemistry and, and just basically what good science is talking about, uh, the essence of competition. But first, why is it important? Well, I, I think it goes back to that idea of improvement and that it's sort of a catalyst for testing yourself. Otherwise, you sort of end up in a vacuum, right? I mean, if you really want to just do a sort of pullback, bird's eye view, competition is any kind of social comparison. And why, why is that important? We're social animals. We... That's what we do. I mean, we think about how am I doing compared to my my sister or my friend, and I mean, it's just a it's sort of a, it's just a natural response, really. And to me, it's important to master that and understand. You know, I don't really care how I'm doing compared to my best friend. This isn't. This does not need to be a competition. And if you're more cognizant about the process of competition, and the best competitors pick and choose. You know, they're not, pick they and pick and shoot when they're going to compete. Mm. So they, I mean, the, the okay. great competitor is, you know, I want an Olympian who says, I will fart as, fight as hard as I possibly wait, can. Wait, wait, what, what did you just say? I said fight, but I mispronounced it, I think. <laughs> will you edit that? <laughs> that was so good. No, that's perfect. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I really think I said fight, but it didn't come out right. Okay. Um, anyway, 
train lost. So the best competitor and the best Olympian goes in and says, I am going to work really hard <laughs> to, um, to be successful and I will you know, crush my opponents, whatever he needs to do to fire himself up. But he doesn't have that same approach to getting a parking space at the mall, even if he's late for the movie. Yeah. Okay. So what you're or saying is they can toggle. They can. They have volitional. They have control. They can toggle it up and down when they need to. Yeah. The great competitors understand when it's not important. Oh. And I think another part of you know, the great competitor tying it into the idea of improvement is a great competitor understands it can take a really long time to get good at something. A very long time. So. This is why. This is why I think the talented, it's hard for the talented to stay the journey because it was easy for them. They're always the tallest, the strongest, the biggest at a young age. So it's really difficult for the young talented to stay the path of mastery or skill development. And sometimes they don't have that fire. And that fire, I think, is what you and I are going to call that competitive drive to get better. I, and I will say I am totally one of those people. W- which one? Uh, the just slightly too good for my own good. Oh, early on? Yeah. yeah. I, um, I wanted, my mom made me take piano lessons, which I hated. And I said, no, I want to learn guitar. And my mom would be like, no, finally. She said, okay, fine. I can, and I got a guitar for Christmas, and it was very exciting. And I just refused to practice. And I would get to practice, I would get to my lesson maybe 10 minutes before, and I would in 10 minutes, learn all of what I was supposed to do, and then I would have my lesson. And my teachers would be like, if you would just practice, you could actually be good. I'm like, yeah, but I'm good enough not practicing. And that sort of not pushing myself, I mean, in some ways, you know, hopefully I picked and choose what was important and I did practice the other things that were important. I, I still think I probably could, you know, do better in terms of that focus and working through boredom than... I, it's still probably an issue I have, but, but yeah, the idea that, you know, I'm good at something, so I didn't have to work hard at it, or, you know, one of the reasons that um, Poe and I first wrote about Carol Dweck, uh, besides the fact that I loved her research, was I felt it applied to me, that, you know, the, we're taught you're talented, you're either good at something or you're not. You're, you're, and, so, you're, you're specifically referring to growth, having a growth mindset. Yes, yeah. and, a, and a fixed mindset. And I was definitely the fixed mindset. You know, I'm not good at math. I'm good at singing. I'm good at English. I, the world was very neatly categorized into things Ashley was good at and Ashley was not good at. And they're narrow the twain should be. But, uh, you know, I hear you say that, and I believe you. <laughs> but at the, same, <laughs> at the same time, I hear you. Don't believe me. <laughs> but at, the, at a young age, you, ha- you demonstrated a growth mindset. Like, I'm going to put my hand up because this thing that I want is really important. That's being open to growing. That's being open to risk. Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I, there's confirmation bias. We're always not really sure and good, and good perspective on what we do. But I, I did feel that thing, you know, there were things I was good at. And, and my standards for pushing myself are very high. Okay, so they, I didn't yeah. need to spend time on the things that I was marginal or suck at. 
<laughs> I was just like, no, 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 I should work really hard at the things that I'm already good at and then I can be better and I just won't worry about that other stuff that I'm bad at. And, um, and I realize now that was a bad call on my part. I missed out. So I'm trying to those, take those small risks. Yeah, so risk-taking is a skill as well. There's a neurochemistry, people that have like low cortical arousal right? They, they want stimulation. They tend to take risks more because they enjoy it. And that's maybe a model that's being slightly debunked from a research perspective, but the idea of it still holds true. It like, is. I mean, I, the last studies I'd seen, maybe you've seen them more recent, was that that was sort of one of the neuroscience of extroversion, that the, the extrovert was slightly below in dopamine and they get when you were saying excited from other people, they're literally getting dopamine from that interaction. And because their baseline is perhaps lower, they, uh, they need more. And the introversion, introvert probably has a higher baseline of dopamine. But that means then other people just make them you know, overwhelmed and Yes. Um, too, much, too much dopamine. And what I'm, <laughs> yeah, what my, yes. And my thought was that it's, um, it's not as clean as low cortical arousal means you're a risk taker and high cortical arousal, high dopamine means that you're not going to yeah. take risks easily. It's not okay. quite as clean. There's some other stuff going on, but for, for folks, lots, lots of stuff. <laughs> so much. So, can, can you explain for folks, um, that uh -oh. might not be easily versed or uh, recently versed, I'm sorry, with dopamine and serotonin mm -hmm. and uh, some of the other neurochemicals, uh, neurotransmitters that are relevant and important for competition. Mm -hmm. And how, again, if we're drawing this bright line, is that the reason to embrace competition is to sharpen and improve a skill or a way of living. And mm -hmm. so there's value in competing to quote unquote be your best or to get better. Mm -hmm. And there's also some brain chemistry. Can you pull on one of those threads? The, um, and Yes. Yes. Please. Very excited. Thank you. Very excited. Uh, so Poe Bronson and I had written an article and I think we'd already were way deep into writing our first book together, Nurture Shock. And um, so I already knew a little bit about, about dopamine. I understood it was a neurotransmitter and it is sort of the chemical expression of rewards, right? Your nucleus accumbens and your ventral striatum light up whether someone gives you a compliment or those a trophy. Are, those are two very particular parts of the brain very, that, two, that do pretty much one thing really well. Yeah, they, 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 they check out rewards. That, that is what they want to do. Ooh, was that a good thing? I'm happy. Um, so I already knew that going in, and I was having a conversation with a UC Berkeley neuroscientist, Sylvia Bungay, and she just completely floored and confused me because she was talking about motivation, and she was saying that motivation is expressed in the brain with the transmission of dopamine. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm like, wait, I know what dopamine is. You know, I know that if you spritz dopamine... It activates the synapses, which means that you get more engagement from the neurons and they are more plastic and they withhold and, and transfer information and then capture it better. So your brain learns more on dopamine. I knew all that already. But where I was confused was I always thought the motivation was sort of the gas in the car that got you to your goal, right? I'm motivated to work hard. I'm motivated to 
become an Olympian. I'm motivated to get a promotion. I don't care what it is, but motivation was the thing that you were doing to get you to your goal. And that's why I was so confused because my understanding of dopamine in terms of its lighting up the ventral striatum and the nucleus accumbens was you get dopamine when you achieve your goal. So dopamine is the reward. But Sylvia was saying that dopamine is what you get in motivation. And I was like, but motivation is what gets you to the goal. And then I realized, and I thought about this for weeks, and then I realized motivation is the goal. That we as humans are not built to have a bucket list. Here are my goals. Here's my dopamine. I check it off and then I'm done. That we, we biochemically. Call that, we call that addiction, right? Like I'm going to do a thing to get a neurochemical exchange. And it's the thing, whether it's the purchase or the, or the work or the thrill or the some sort of uh, ingestion of, of a, a substance that we rely on for the chemical neurochemical exchange. But uh, I'm agreeing with you that it's the, yeah, but, it's the but path. That's not where I, but that, but that, I, I agree with all of that, but that's not where I was going with okay, it. Where going. I was Sorry. going with it is that, I mean, like, if you think about it, and I tell people all the time, you know, we already mentioned I'm stressing over my Christmas crocheting because I'm going to pick yarn people won't like and I'll be disappointed. But while I'm making my, my scarves and it takes me hours because I'm not a very good crocheter, I, I'm imagining that they're going to like it and that they're going to wear it. And it takes me hours to make a scarf. And by the time I give them the scarf, I actually burst into tears. <laughs> I do, and it's just so stupid. I'm like, I don't know why, but I'm, I get weepy because I feel like I'm giving them part of a you know, calendar of my days or something. I don't know. But normally when, you know, when I'm planning something, even when it comes off the way I, I want it to, there's like a letdown. What, what was missing? And what I realized from talking to Sylvia was that the dopamine from getting the success, the dopamine from having my friends say, oh, wow, I love the scarf. Really? You do? Really? More dopamine, more reassurance is because the dopamine from the actual success paled in comparison to the dopamine I had during the process, uh, during the motivation to do it. And that's what I was about to say that we're as humans not built to do something and then say we're done. The point of our physiology is to literally give us the physical and mental capability once we do the next one goal to do the next goal. So your hit of dopamine from being successful is not your victory lap. It's to help you find the next goal. And the same time... You know, testosterone, which is sort of the hormonal equivalent. Uh, this is bastardizing the science. I apologize to you and all those who know better. But you could kind of say that, you know, dopamine is the neurotransmitter version of motivation and that testosterone is the hormonal version of it. And once again, you get a boost of testosterone when you win. Bec not because, woohoo, I'm awesome, but because... You're getting ready to do the next challenge. And you can get a bigger testosterone from a near win, right? Because it's the guy who just lost. He said, no, no, rematch, right? Mm -hmm. So it's that preparation biochemically and physically to get us to continue on. 
So motivation really is the goal. I love it. And because that's the path, right? Mm-hmm. And so in an in a Eastern frame or a, a, the typical conversations about mastery is that the path in and of itself is the virtue. The path of growing, in other words, is the path worth going on because it's sustainable. And what, what you're adding to this conversation is, yes, that's nice and eloquent. But if you look at our biochemistry, if you look at our neurochemistry, what's actually taking place is we're releasing testosterone and we're releasing dopamine as we're going to enhance and increase motivation, to enhance and increase the experience of reward and the strength to build on new physical and mental capabilities. Um, and that's, and, and, keep going, yes. Yeah, well, and, and people sometimes, you know, they listen to me talk about, you know, growth mindset or motivation and it's improvement. And at some point someone says, oh, it's the journey, not the destination. And, and I actually don't like that. And it's not that it's wrong. The idea is right, but it sounds kind of easy. And soft. And what I want people to focus on is, it's actually really just, it's about the process rather than the journey. Because the journey kind of makes me feel like at a certain point I can just, you know, sit on a rock and take it in. (laughs) And (laughs) wow, I've got a really, you know, like, oh, look, it's the journey. That's a nice pretty pine pine tree or whatever. Um, So to me, trying to frame it as it's the process is just to keep you more engaged and more and involved and understanding that there's movement and yeah there's movement in the journey but the journey could be a flat path across the desert and I'm hoping that a progress is more of a climbing of a mountain I guess to really mess with the metaphor but (laughs) (laughs) cool okay so then teach us a little bit from your findings no it's good and then if you teach us um or at least it's good for me, I should say. I, I appreciate that. I use the phrase, the, a journey, often. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, it doesn't feel like it's walking across the plains. It, if it was flatland, it would feel like the journey is about figuring out how do I plan for not having enough food and water. And some part of the plains are going to be icy cold, and some part of the plains are going to be rigid. And you <laughs> know, <laughs> Yeah, like, so w- w- you and I don't need to take this any further. I think we're on the same page with it. But okay, yes. can, can you teach... Can you teach me, can you teach us about how to increase um, or coach or help our, m- myself or and or how I could help a loved one mm-hmm. um, do differently to enhance dopamine production? Or <laughs> Because it gets complicated if I'm gonna, we're going to talk about turning it off because that's actually another whole set of problems. But yeah, yeah let's not do that. Like how to help <laughs> others uh, increase dopamine or... Uh, increase the tes- uh, production of testosterone? Hmm. That's a super good question. I, my, my immediate answer is to go to the ideas of challenge and threat. So can we go there? Is that where we were supposed to go? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I was hoping you would take us okay. to. Which, and, and also, like, you, you, just, you made yeah. something really popular in pop culture, which is how to teach our kids to love the process. Mm-hmm. At least I attribute it you to. I, I don't know if that, that's accurate or not, but you can take us in one of those two directions. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, are you talking about my hatred of everybody gets a probing programs? Because I'm fairly infamous or famous on that one. Um, no, I don't, what are you talking about there? I'm not sure what you meant. When, when a, in AYSO, every kid gets a medal at the end of the yes. season, no matter yes. what. Yes. They're 
There isn't a pithy name for it other than everybody gets a trophy. I joked that it's a trophy industrial complex that's behind it. And it's a... <laughs> oh my God. That well, is a cynic comment. I love well, it. I made that joke. And then I found out it's a $3 billion, with a B, $3 billion a year industry in the U.S. and Canada. There are two separate trophy and award recognition industry lobbying associations. And I was like, oh my God, there really is a trophy industrial complex. Oh, that is freaking me <laughs> out right now. Yeah. Um, okay, so stay on this point of view for just a mo- this topic for just a moment about your point of view on, so yeah, why, that, why do you don't like that every kid gets a trophy? Oh, it's not don't like. It's way more violent hatred. Okay, so I don't go to the violent <laughs> hatred, but I do agree with you. <laughs> Well, I didn't start out that way, okay. but I, I've gotten to a pretty vitriolic perspective. Mm. And the reason is for a few things. One, I, I think that it was well-meaning. I think the idea is, I really think that the idea behind everyone getting a trophy has nothing to do with the kids who would have won otherwise. It's not even about the kids who might win occasionally. It's all about protecting the self-esteem of the kid who wouldn't have won anyway mm-hmm. and would maybe never win. And that that's a painful experience and we want to protect our kids from it. And I, since we go back to oversharing, with total klutz, always the last picked on the team, I never would have won an award in any activity for physical, like my whole life. Um, and so I know from personal experience, yes, that really does hurt. Yes, it really is embarrassing and awful. But I think it, then you, it, arise, it asks a couple questions. Well, first, the kids who would have won, you're presuming it doesn't affect them. Well, actually, there's at least some research now. There's not a lot of it, but there is some research that actually says, no, actually, they really care. They... Um, and anecdotally, I know I've had you know, kids tell me that my favorite example, and I've heard this from more than one occasion, completely different coasts. One time it happened in L.A., one time it happened in New York, so the kids didn't know each other. But the kids were so angry that they actually set their medals on fire during the award ceremony. Hmm. And I've had kids tell me, why did I work so hard and I got the same trophy as everybody else? They felt tricked. Hmm. So... I don't think we can just presume that everyone else isn't affected. But even if we say, yeah, but really got to protect that kid's self-esteem. It's the most important thing. Okay, well, that's still an empirical question. Does this work? Mm -hmm. And the research actually has found, um, there's research out of the University of Ohio, there's now longitudinal work, that overpraised kids who have low self-esteem do not achieve more. They stop. Okay, I got my overpraise, I got my medal, I don't need to keep doing it. And we don't know if it's because they just feel like, well, they've accomplished everything they could. Maybe they recognize it's insincere praise and they're embarrassed by it too. But it doesn't help them. So that's one of the reasons that I started on this path of I don't like it. And then I got more upset and frustrated because... If the idea behind everybody gets a trophy is, well, don't be afraid of taking risks. Don't be afraid of participating because you know you're going to win. So you shouldn't worry about it. You'll do fine. 
and that the idea was that they're leveling the playing field, but it's a safe space to win. You're automatically going to win. And we've lowered the stakes, so you shouldn't be afraid to try. But I actually, and, and maybe that's true for one medal, but I know kids who come home from one day karate tournament and they come home with eight participation medals from the day. Every single time they did an activity that day, they got a medal. And I think over time, this isn't saying you can do it because you know you're going to be successful. It's saying you only do what you're successful at. Mm. This is a family of winners and nothing is worth doing if you don't come home with the trophy. And it's actually heightened this expectation of winning and made something like mistakes or failure become unimaginable. We literally, there is no evidence that a child has ever failed because they always have medals. Now, maybe they did fail, but we have to pretend they were successful rather than say, yeah, today was not a good day. Oh, well, not a big deal. I'd rather no one get a trophy than everyone get a trophy. It's like the highlight reels that we're creating from Instagram and Twitter, like everybody looks good in pictures now because we edit the ones where our eyes are half cocked or <laughs> our, you know, our smiles like in a weird frame. So I, th- I what I'm hearing you say is that, okay, it's probably, it's, I don't think you take away the importance of creating a low level, lower intensity level to learn. However, I, th- what I hear you saying is that let's match uh, the achievement with the reward. Well, I think that's definitely true. I, I think that, you know, again, we said it earlier, it takes a long time to get good at something. Mm-hmm. I'd rather no one have an award. I'd rather have a kid say, hey, I want to play soccer because I want to have fun running around the field and get, you know, hang out with my friends. I don't care what the score is. I don't care what the result is. It's not why I'm there. Well, if that's the case, far be it for me to say, Wanting to spend time with your friends and get physical activity is not good enough. You have to have an award, too. Yeah, and if um, for the parents that are listening, the, the research out of Canada, for, and you, if you did a quick search for long-term athletic development, LTAD, it's phenomenal. It's a developmental, developmentally-minded approach um, across lifespan for the appropriate level of competition and learning relevant to the brain structure and level of interest per gender uh, and age. It's really great. I'm sure you've obviously dug into that, but um, it's a good model for parents. Just It's a quick little infographic that you can take a look at. Yeah, and I don't agree with people who say, oh, well, it's fine for the three and four-year-olds because it's so cute. Like, a three or four-year-old does not know what a medal is. Yeah, I have no the idea. The only reason, they want a toy. So, you know, maybe it's a weapon or something that they can fling at somebody, right? But they don't know what it is. They know it's a big deal because we made it a big deal. If you want to, and I think, no, just let them learn and let them, and learning should be the reward. So I'm really upset that we spend $3 billion a year on trophies and awards I asked a researcher how many trophies are given in the United States every year. And he said there was no number. The best estimate he could do was millions and millions because people just, you know, print out certificates. There's no way to count how many. And I mean, single athletic teams, organizations are handing out thousands of these a year, which I, um, under, I, I tutor underprivileged kids in Los Angeles and they don't have a ball. So the idea that all this money is going to medals no one cares about <laughs> when it, it could go to, say, a kid who would like a ball to play with, 
really hurts me. And there's not even an upside for those kids who got the medal psychologically. It's just so you can see why I got a little violent in my hatred over time. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you did something really important is you gave people a way to think about this, which was, hey, instead of giving rewards or trophies to everybody um, in the car, obviously you would nod your head to this, that the reason kids leave sport is because of the car ride home. It's not because of the coaches. It's not because of the whether they got a trophy or didn't. Certainly not that one. But it's the car ride home. And you gave some, you gave parents and coaches a really important tool, which is instead of asking about outcome and about trophy and about winning and losing, ask them about things they can get better at. Mm-hmm. Simple. Well, my know. favorite praise advice, my favorite response is something that Carol Dweck told me, which is sometimes the best praise is just, how do you think you did? That was warm and neutral, and you could have been the worst day ever or it could have been the best day ever. But it's inviting the kid to say what their assessment is, good or bad, and then have the conversation from there. And that's what we want from kids. That's what we want from grown-ups. We want them to be able to identify their weaknesses and their strengths and build on them rather than have to wait for someone else to tell you how you did. That's right. And with that response, there's a trap. So if the parent says, well, how do you think you did? And they're just waiting to see if the kid got all oh, the yeah. reasons that they did it wrong for the parent. No, to you have th- to be genuine. <laughs> it has, yeah, if, it, if it's not genuine, I, there's yours, a total... Yours, yours was... Um, yours sounded judgmental. Mine was very warm. And hey, how do you think you did? Tell me about your day. That, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. Because there's a trap there, right? Which is, well, how do you yeah. think you did? <laughs> Yeah, well, no, that was, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for kids to genuinely think about and reflect on what they did. And, yeah, I mean, Victoria Talwar, we wrote about her in Ultrashock, um, you know, would say that a lot of parents inadvertently bait kids into lying. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened to the base? Well, there's a baseball where the hole was, you know, that used to be everybody knows what happened to the base. So when you're asking a kid what happened to the base, you're just baiting them into lying. So we're not trying to put kids in the defensive. We're giving them the opportunity to reflect on what they do. Okay, so I have um, been fortunate enough to ask this question to many people that are... We're not going to get to challenge and threat, are you? It's like our, my driving thing okay. in my life. Oh, all right, all right. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, no, do it. I, because I think the challenge and threat piece is... Um, that's yeah, so good. So let's let's dive into that. But I want to understand the dark side of competition and okay. um, where it shows up in your life as well, just to honor that part of it. But yes, mm-hmm. threat, please. <laughs> uh, challenge and threat first? Please, yeah. Okay. So the easiest way in the scientific understanding, and a lot of this comes from the work of University of California at San Francisco, where uh, Wendy Barry Mendes, uh, Jeremy Gen- Jamison at the University of Rochester, Mark Blaskovich and a ton of other researchers. And they, um, but the idea is that a challenge is when you have the resources, skills, and ability to succeed. Or the perception that you well, have. Well, you those. don't, you, well, um, that, that's what we're talking about. Okay, is good. That I, although I wanted to actually get into that as sort of the, that's the post grad version. Okay. The, um, to start, you say, I ha- do I have them? Do I have the resources, skills, and ability to succeed? It doesn't mean a success is guaranteed, right? It could work. It might not any given Sunday. But I, I have a meaningful chance. 
And a threat then is when you don't have the resources, skills, and ability to succeed. And the main question is how badly is this going to go? And what's amazing in these two different perspectives is now we're getting back to the physiology that the psychology of challenge and threat trigger different physiological responses that are, I, I, I can't overestimate how significant they are. Uh, Jeremy Jameson, who I just mentioned, um, did an experiment with chronically anxious people given the uh, Trier social stress test. They were asked chronically anxious people to give a speech about their life, dreams, and hopes, and people were insulting them. <laughs> Said that's a stupid life goal. And if you, <laughs> they were already chronically anxious. Just those poor people. They were mm-hmm. debriefed at the end. Um, good anyway. research. Jeez. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they were debriefed. They were okay. Okay. Good. Uh, they were debriefed. Just. But um, the difference between going into that speech and feeling nervous and excited a challenge or a threat, excited is the challenge, threat is the nervous, was an additional two liters of blood pumping out of their hearts above baseline per minute. Two liters. I tell Olympians, I can increase your heart, your cardiac output by two liters per minute. Whoa, being in a cup for the rest of my life. Don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. The difference is psychological. That's right. So um, in a challenge state, your heart rate variability improves your Blood vessels all dilate, you burn stored glucose, you get an increase in testosterone, you get a depression in cortisol, you get increases in adrenaline versus noradrenaline or epinephrine versus norepinephrine, if you want to speak American in English. Um, So you get these biological responses that we were talking about later facilitate your actually competing. And in a threat state, your heart rate variability drops, your heart rate goes up but you have vasoconstriction. So now you've got all this blood rushing out of your heart, but it doesn't have anywhere to go. So it's in the threat state. You hear boom, 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 boom in your ears and your mm-hmm. fingers start getting tingly and numb. And you get a burst of energy because you burn circulating glucose, not stored in cl- glucose. And a, a, a sort of cascade of these neuro responses and physiological responses happen. And what's amazing and I think particularly relevant for your listening audience is researchers at the University of Washington did a great study recently sort of asking the question, well, what separates the elite? I mean, at a certain point, if, if you already have the skills, aren't you at ceiling? Shouldn't everybody perform at the same level if they already have the skills, right? The novice doesn't have the skills and they can't perform. That's fine. They don't know. But someone who's had, you know, they, in this particular study, they did a shooting simulation with professional police officers. And they've had at least 10 years on the force. Well, they've all done these exercises. They know how guns work. They know how shooting simulations work. So in theory, they should all be at, simu- they should be at ceiling. The psychophysiological difference them walking in thinking, are you scoring me based on how many, th- how many targets I hit or how many targets I miss? Are you scoring me on based on what I did compared to someone else? Are you scoring you know, those kinds of questions and the psychological triggering the physiological accounted for 73% of the variance between the two performances. Okay, so unpack that last piece um, hmm. it, because it's the, the eloquence of what you just said. It's tightly packed and it's 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 nice, which is the psychology and the physio. The psychology comes first, 
then the physiology comes second. So well, if you would, they, I, they, they, they're a cascade, but they're also a, a vicious or virtuous depending cycle. You can use them for both. And it's the yes, and though, and though, and it's the <laughs> it's the mentally disciplined who have awareness of what we're talking about now. That my thoughts impact my physiology, and my physiology, if I'm if I'm unaware, impacts my, my psychology. It's that interaction between both that's really important. And the mentally right. aware and disciplined can stop it by right. as simple as saying, whoa, look what I'm doing to myself. Right. Hold on now. And they do some sort of intervention, quick intervention. Mm-hmm. Bre- breathing happens to be one of the, the right. m- more potent ones to do. And, and if you're skilled at breathing... Maybe it's just one breath or two breaths or five breaths that can work, but you have to be skilled at it. Well, and- my favorite example of that is a study of special forces and elite athletes that came out of UCSD's OptiBrain program. And, and the comparison group were people prone to panic attacks. So I call them panickers. <laughs> I know that's not the term, but mm-hmm. I call them panickers. Mm-hmm. And... All of them are preternaturally sensitive to changes in their heart rate. They can even tell you how much, and they don't, I mean, they can tell you like how many breathes per minute my heart rate is going up. But the special forces and the elite athletes said, hmm, my heart rate's going up. Something, something is, is that appropriate given what I'm about to do? Is there something in my environment that I need to change? And the panickers went, ooh, my heart rate's going up. I'm going to have a panic attack. Oh, oh, no. Oh, and their psychology and goes, their psychology is that train. It's a train right. of thought that is panic-based. Right. So I, um, so to me, there the idea is that the elite athletes and the special forces guys are saying the physiology is a diagnostic tool showing me there's something I need to address, whereas the panickers, it was the diagnosis. Once their heart rate goes up, they're on that train, and yeah, they can't stop it. That's right. So, yes, I. So I actually, from my experience now, try and look at them both ways. I understand that if I'm nervous about something, if I'm stressed, and I'm feeling those physiological symptoms, well, metabolics-wise, it's going to take about 45 minutes for my testosterone levels and cortisol and everything to get regulated anyway. So now I'm just going to have to realize this is how I'm going to feel and how am I going to best perform under these situations. I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to be shaking. How do I power through this? Um, that's the worst case scenario. The, ideally, though, I think in advance, okay, this is going to be stressful. I'm going to think of this as a challenge. And what is a challenge? Well, we talked about it earlier. It's not whether or not I'm going to be successful at the task. It's can I learn from this? And if I can learn from this, it should always be a challenge. And I can look forward to it that way. But then I can also use the physiology as cues. I, I, was, um, I was preparing a speech a few months ago. And I thought, you know, it was a big speech and I was working really hard and I'd been reading a lot of stuff. But I thought I was pretty prepared and I, think I, I thought I had things under control. And I turned around and I found another, I don't know, couple hundred pages of science that I hadn't read yet that I thought I'd read. And I immediately broke out into a cold sweat. And I said, wow, my body's telling me something. I am more stressed out about this speech than I thought I was. I need to figure out more about how I'm going to prepare for this. So you can use the physiology actually to help you identify the psychology 
but you can also use the psychology ideally to prevent the physiology from going badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and maybe even you use the word prevention, and, and, but it's accurate because our, our brain is going to scan the world to find what's dangerous. We're, we are really good at that. So it is a prevention in some respects, but we can use this as an optimization strategy as well, which is, let's say that, let's go back to when you saw that um, 100 pages of something that you didn't do, you felt that cold mm-hmm. kind of sweat take place. Actually, what happened before that was un. Um, below your awareness was, mm-hmm. oh shit. Yeah. So there was a thought, yeah. right? There was an interpretation of that. And then that, oh shit, was related to something else, which is likely they're going to find out I'm not good enough or I'm going to look <laughs> stupid or there's something underneath of that. And that's for all of us, right? Getting kicked mm-hmm. out of the tribe is a really dangerous, um, uh, tenuous experience for for our ancestry long ago and we still carry it with us today and all of these are evolutionary processes there's no doubt yeah i know for sure (laughs) and but if we can decouple who we are from the thing that we the thing that we love doing or the thing that we understand well or the craft that we're expressing whether it be sport or arts or poetry poetry or writing that as if poetry wasn't writing but if we can decouple the th- uh, who we are from what we do, mm-hmm. then that second thought, and maybe the first thought, the oh shit thought, has less less potency. So imagine imagine this scenario: you see, uh, you flip the, you un- unearth a hundred pages that you thought that you had already read, and you say, "Oh, look at this! Hundred pages! Oh my goodness! Okay, well that's a lot to get in in the next three hours." Um, <laughs> But you know what? Let, let me see what I can add. Maybe there's something here, and I'll get to it next time. But what I have, everything I need is already in me, mm-hmm. right? Like that statement, everything I have is already in me. And that, that statement for me invites um, the divine and the secular to be able to embrace that thought. Now, I, ch- I choose to think about this in a very spiritual frame, but it also backs up for me this idea that I've put in a lot of work in the shed by myself to understand this thing deeply and everything I need right now is just right and if I don't know it I don't know it and if I do know it wonderful but I don't think I know very much so let's go ahead and see what we can learn together (laughs) and that's a didactic relationship between uh, both audience and stage and stage and audience and small tabletops and deep conversations like what we're having now so yeah there's a night there's a nice interplay here so for those that Oh my gosh, we're at an hour and 17 minutes. I, I, I need to apologize again. <laughs> God, I, I thought we See, were... See, you need to edit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Um, okay, so what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is like ask and love up your kids for what they can get better at and talk to them about the process as well as ask them um, what did they learn. So have regard for their experience the second or the third frame here that we're talking about is um, on this last piece is can you can you put in the work to become skilled and to understand something and then can you interpret the moments that you're going to express that thing as a challenge as opposed to a threat if you get caught that it's a threat and you're kind of on that train of thought can you interrupt it in some kind of way by having awareness and then the discipline to know how to get your mind back towards challenge. And that's basically, can you anchor back into why you have the right to go do this thing, whatever this thing is? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's the same thing that for the kids is for myself and for 
the challenge and threat, and I was plowing through it fast so I could get it in. Sorry. Mm. But that if you really think of it, everything as an opportunity for growth and a learning experience. And if you really believe that and embrace that, then that is the challenge. And as long as you learn from it, then you know going in you're going to be successful. And my, my best example of that was a young woman I mentor was really nervous. She'd just gotten her first job interview. And she'd worked really hard on her resume and draft after draft. And she called me and she said, well, you know, help me figure out. I said, okay, bring two copies of your resume, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you you're going to get the job because I don't know. I don't know who else is interviewing. I don't know what they're looking for. Who knows? Like what I can promise is you're going to learn from this experience that by the end of this, you will never have to have another first job interview of your life ever again. And you can learn from it. Can you do that? I'm like, I want you to tell your bosses you want this job and this is really important. But for when you go in, mentally prepare for how can you learn from this as much as you possibly can. And she said, yeah, I can do that. And she called me the week afterwards and she said, I wasn't nervous and I learned from it. And I didn't get the job, but I'm totally fine. And a week after that, she had her second interview and she got a job offer. That's great. Because, yeah. And so to me, that's the thing is if we're really focused on and believe in the value of improvement, and believe in the value of learning and opportunity for growth. I, I, I think you're good pretty much whether you're talking about a three-year-old on a you know, rec soccer pitch or someone playing the World Cup. I 100% agree that this, the psych, the psych, if you have a strong psychological framework, you don't mm-hmm. need to patch it with all these silly little hacks. And if you in part of the psychological framework that allows for sturdiness is that you want to keep adding to the scaffolding. You want to be the architecture, you want to be the architect for growth. Mm-hmm. And that's looking at, at moments as challenges yeah. instead of threats. Yeah. And, and, there, and listen, our bodies and mind are deeply designed to manage threat. No, well, no. and I mean, it goes back to where we started with, like, with risk-taking, right? Yeah, that's right. So this is why practicing mm-hmm. risk-taking is so important. Exactly. <laughs> you can practice courage and you can practice mm-hmm. risk-taking. Yep. You, know, you can practice those both. Okay, so uh, have you pulled on the thread with all of your research of the science of competition and being around you know, apex competitors? Is there a single way of thinking um, about their, what is their ideal competitive mindset that you've come across? I have not found it but I'm just curious if you have. I I don't think so. I I read a study over the summer looking at Olympic gold medalists and British industry tycoons from a bunch of different fields. And they sort of had the same responses to difficulty. They were problem solvers. They thought about things in a sort of third-person dispassionate non-emotional way um it wasn't about how the loss made me feel it's about what did i do that caused the loss what will i do now to win the next time yeah internal they have an internal uh vector of control like right what i did i can get better at or i can stay Mm -hmm. sharp with something yeah and they also into the opportunity for growth and challenge are also looking for the ways to get better. So I think that there are some strands like that. 
But in terms of, you know, what is the best competitive, you know, some people do best, you know, playing not to lose. And some people do best feeling anxious and feeling like everyone's putting under pressure and, you know, don't want to let the country down. And some people are going to be their worst in that perspective. So I don't think there's one right answer there. To me, the best competitors know what those things and situations are that make them do their best and do their worst and use that to their advantage rather than there being, you know, one particular formula I could give to everybody. And I would say instead of them, it makes them do their best, it invites or supports or it calls on them to do their best. And I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally, because I I think it's part of our, uh, we we have choices, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that this is part of the deal that you just hit on is that some people do perform better when they've got the weight of the world on their shoulders. It's just not fun. I haven't met anyone no. that says, I love that. Yeah, the, I didn't say it was fun. I just yeah. said they may recognize they do. You know, some people do best playing angry. Uh, some people do best playing happy. Some people do best calm. Yeah, it, that's it's was, recognizing yeah. those things. And yeah, it doesn't mean that they're happy, but <laughs> That's a different conversation. That's another hour right there. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's let's think about this for a minute. If we shift gears a little bit, of all the different mental skills that support great competitors, what would you say, like generating calm, generating confidence, being able to be calm and focused, um, you know, yeah. having clear clear goals, what, what would you say are the, some of the, that you've come across has been the, the, a common thread? Common thread? Yeah. You mean in terms of things I want to teach people? No, no, no. Which ones do you think are most important? Just on the mental skills part. Yeah. Um, Well, I think calm and happy are, you have to go there. Uh, They're both overrated. And, you know, yeah, some people do their best anxious. Some people do their best fired up. And to tell everyone you need to be calm is a big disservice. I think it's a distraction because someone who does their best wired and fired up then, you know, oh, people was, you know, I ask people all the time, you know, if you're upset and you're nervous and someone tells you to calm down, does that ever work? Not once. It- no, it just makes you more upset because now you can be upset that you're not calming down and upset about the fact you were upset. And upset the fact that somebody else knows that you're a wreck. Oh, yeah. It's just, it just, it's, a, yeah, it's going to send you right over the judge. So I don't think calm down is the right answer. If people are stressed, I follow the study from Harvard University, and her, the advice is: you're not stressed, you're excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and, that... and to and to understand that you can only be stressed about things you care about. Yeah, so that's you've really got to cool. change it to something yeah. a positive understanding that this is important to me, and that's a good thing. <laughs> and we're going to use that to our benefit, rather than this is so important, I'm going to implode. Yeah, I like it. I talk. I do talk about the value of calm, but I make sure I anchor it with fire. That there's some sort of fire. Can it's not relaxed and mellow. Ah, yeah. So, so that, I think that's the thing. People think that it's you know some zen, nothing bothers me state. I think focus is important. Mm-hmm. Deep focus. And you know the people who do best angry, if it's pure rage and they're just storming around the clubhouse, that's not going to do them or anyone around them any good. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to have anger and then channel that into what they're doing. Inten- so turn it into intensity if they can. Yes, yes. just you know the anger is just a fire that just burns. 
you know, it burns, it burns so many people, but. Well, I mean, there's, again, if you're pure rage and chronic anger is a problem, but there's been research that people who get angry in appropriate circumstances have higher mental well-being than those who are just happy all the time. And it, to me, you know, I, I think anger is the agent of change. Happy people are happy. They're complacent. They are happy. There is no reason to change. An angry person says, no, I need to do something. The, the catalyst for anger is perceiving an obstacle in your way, but believing you have something you can do to change it. If you have an obstacle but no power to change it, that doesn't lead to anger. That leads to despair. So I, I think anger can be very productive and societally, we're told, you know, don't be angry. I think that's wrong, but it's still always about making sure that what you've got is a productive thing that's moving you forward and not just making you go, ching. It's the tone that it comes out in. Fire and passion and intensity is yeah. like we, as Americans, let's just call, you know, this part of the world right now, most mm. parts of the world do love this, but um, not everybody, right? But, but this idea of being... Um, angry all the time it, it's like there's there's a the yeah, well, way it comes bad. out yeah <laughs> that's right. bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of research cardiovascular that's a problem but okay this is about you now right oh no, we started with me and then we went awful yeah. okay but <laughs> pressure comes from <sighs> oh, i'm just answer that mm-hmm. oh myself there i yeah i don't even know how to say that anything otherwise than that yeah. Okay. I, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I wish there was more to it, but I, I think it's like, I, I just, my standards, I, you know, I want to, I want to be good. I want to work hard. I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to disappoint myself. And, and, you know, I mean, it was interesting. I was one of the funny things lately you know, there's sort of that idea that when you take psycho one, psych 101 in college, you walk out every day with the new malady that you've just read about that you realized you must have. Mm-hmm. And lately, I've actually been sort of doing an, an opposite thing where I read something and I thought I was the only one and went, oh, really? Apparently, that's a prototypical response. Everybody does that. And the research pretty much shows that we're all harder on ourselves than everybody else is. That... I make a stupid comment, I misspeak 20 minutes ago, and I'm thinking, oh, I can't believe it, that's the only thing people remember. No one else cares but me. Mm-hmm. And that actually, we're much It's actually endearing, because <laughs> most people will read your reading and, and you know, look at your research and say, oh my gosh, like, she's so smart, and she's, goes, she's done such a body of work, it's intimidating to, to talk to her, but it's Aww. really, yeah, it's really endearing <laughs> to... <laughs> to, to, to be human. <laughs> so, um, okay, it all comes down to... $64,000 question adjusted for inflation. Um, and I asked someone mathematically what that was. It was not a satisfying number. So, you know, it needs to be more... <sighs> I think that is the question is, you know, what does it come down to and what's important to you and that that may change depending on the situation and yeah. And, you know, asking yourself, 
is my answer right? And how, how do you, an, as one of the deep researchers in competition, how do you answer it? Well, in terms of competition, or I thought this was about me. It is, <laughs> like what you've learned. As one of the deep researchers in, in competition, oh. like what, what, and as a, a professional woman, like what does it come down to for you? I am getting more and more focused on the risk-taking and learning and wanting to be better. And, and I think that's really hard because if you say I want to be better, there's an implicit that means I'm not actually about all that now. And that's uncomfortable and that's hard. A friend of mine recommended uh, the book Triggers, Marshall Goldsmith's book, somewhere around here. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And and he was like, "Oh, you'll take you you read fast. You'll go like this." And I took like five hours, jury duty, just five hours, just reading it, page after page. And it was just because the ideas of daily reflections on goal setting and how are you doing is hard and scary. And and thought provoking, so hmm. that was a non-answer answer, but that's all I can give you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it the cross. Oh, wait, I'm a lawyer. It depends. It depends. <laughs> the, you know, um, there's a joke about lawyers and happiness. There are and, many. And, yeah. <laughs> I know them all. <laughs> Success is elusive. <laughs> Love. Connection. Relationships. Same thing. Flow. Rare. Super duper rare. I've just, uh, a friend of mine went to an Olympic briefing and they said, hey, who, who here knows about the zone? And I was like, yeah. You mean the zone? Yeah. Like, you know, the zone only happens like 1% of your life. You think the zone is going to be where you are in the most important stressful day of your entire Olympic career? Really? Oh, oh. so flow is great, but you can't wait for it. Yeah. Um, so it's, the it. question is like for <laughs> optimizing, what are you doing that other 99% of the time? And I think yeah. it's, I think it's more than 99. I think it's, I, more I don't than, think, I don't know if that was the number. I'm, yeah, not, I'm, yeah. I'm not even sure that was, and I have no idea where that came from, but, but in, to me, it was just, it catalyzed this idea of, yeah, things get hard and you actually have to, what would it be like if you were starting from the position of things are really hard most of the time and how am I going to anticipate difficulty and overcome it rather than I'm going for the zone, I'm going for the flow, this is all going to be great. And then you get derailed on by circumstance or whatever. So yep. it just sort of changed my mind in terms of your, what your mental preparation is going to be. I think you're right on the money. Like I grew up on a early years were on a farm where I remember chopping wood and and having to heat ice to, to keep our house warm at, at night and to have running water um, on our wood burning stove. I mean, that gives you a sense of what it was like to be a, a young hick. Um, but at the same time, like this concept of doing difficult things Mm-hmm. is really, I think, one of the greatest assets my parents gave me was, hey, listen, to 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 go the distance, to heat your home, right? It's like, it's diff- it can be difficult. So love up doing difficult things and recover really well, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because if you're going to do something that's difficult or do something that's hard, it's hard. Yeah. So, so know how to recover too, but also have the capacity to work, to work Mark, deeply. Mark Siri 
and just as a theory, he's one of the challenge and threat researchers wrote a really just throw two, three paragraphs thrown off in the study, but I was like, oh, um, which is that all of the research right now and conversation about resilience is sort of thinking about it in terms of almost a victimization process. Something really bad happened and I was there to see it and now I need help because I have PTS afterwards. And not to say that that vein isn't important, but you could also ask in resilience, how does something affect me in the moment? And then when you talk about, does any of this even apply to a first responder or an elite athlete? Or I was reading the study the week the Special Olympics was in town. You know, the resilience to say, I am voluntarily going to put myself where millions of people are going to watch me succeed or embarrass myself. How am I going to be resilient in that moment so that I can actually keep going? Uh, we don't have any science to answer those questions, but I thought that was an incredibly important question to ask. Yeah, I, I do too. I think the index of that question is important. If you care deeply about what other people think, you'll likely stay small. If you can, if though mm. you can love other people and not care what they think, then there's an opportunity to have find freedom, which is to find the path that where you're most authentic, on demand in any environment that you're in. And it's a really wonderful opportunity. But, okay, enough of that. That's really cool. Are you, are you going to send me a bill for this? <laughs> no, like, no this, was, this, was for, this was for me, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, no, thank, thank you for the conversation. I got, I got, like, just two more kind of, I think, important, co- uh, like, questions in my head. One is, um, what do you hope the next generation gets right? Well, I'm worried right now what they're getting wrong is this focus on results and focus on the winning and that everybody gets trophies and that they have to constantly get praised and rewarded for everything they do. And they're not prepared for difficulty. So whether it's changing their orientation or their kids' generation, I, they're, you know, the millennials and younger are still too young for me to write them off. Um, I, but I want them to have that feeling that, you know, obstacles are good things and that setbacks are good things. And it's not about making people feel like losers or failures. It's about realizing I can overcome them. My favorite researcher on goal setting is Gabrielle Antigen at the, um, New York University and University of Hamburg. And she talks about how in goal setting, you think about what you want and what are the outcomes and then the obstacles, and then you come up with a plan to overcome the obstacles. But when you succeed, it's not that you had succeeded in spite of the obstacles, but overcoming the obstacles became the goal. And I just love that. It's very zen. Yeah. Whoopmylife.org. That's her website. (laughs) Whoop my life. Okay. How do you articulate mastery? (sighs) Pursuing technical and excellence but using the psychological and cognitive and emotional skills to help you achieve it that, uh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ever write that in an article <laughs> I enjoyed it say, can you say it again or is that like no. <laughs> yeah say, 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 that, say it again or maybe even say it a different way yeah I'm a different way yeah 
Um, I loved it. Okay, well, that's cool. Just replay that then. You've got a loop. You can just replay the tape. I, I think <laughs> that mastery is about pursuing and acquiring technical skill, but using everything in your arsenal, psychological, cognitive, physical, peer support to help you achieve those skills. Mm. Here we go. Okay. Thank you so much. I know it's been a long <laughs> conversation. and um, I had a blast. I hope you and I'm most worried about you poor, leader, poor listeners out there. <laughs> I know. No, Ashley, thank you for sharing um, your interest and your deep curiosity about competition. And I can't wait to hear. I'm going to ask you what you're up into next. But where can people find what you're doing uh, next? And whether they wanted to – obviously um, – I don't know. I, I'm assuming you're writing something new, but well, I, I'm I'm working on some ideas. But actually, the science usually tells me what my idea is. You know, I read something. Oh my gosh! I never even knew that was a thing you could study, and now it's a thing. So I'm waiting for the science to give me that. Uh, but in the meantime, I have a little monthly newsletter called the Sherwood Report, which is free. Anybody can sign up. TheSherwoodReport.com, where I'm doing sort of a page on the cutting edge of science of high performance, and um, I have you know Twitter, AshleyMerriman.com have links to articles that I've written, stuff about the book Top Dog. And, you know, people can email me or tweet me or whatever. Perfect. And it's at Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, Merriman, M-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N. Yes. And um, and then Top Dog. Obviously, go out and get the, mm-hmm. you know, grab the book and uh, go deeper into the science of competition. So, thank you. It's awesome. And so, um, yeah, let's do it again. Like when there's, well, I, usually what happens for me is that I, I get off this conversation and then I say, oh, I wish I would have. Ask this, and so if that comes, sure, up, I'm going to have a bunch of those. Yes, science of regret and missed opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's come back. Let's do it again um, if you'd be open to it. And um, for those of you who are still listening, um, <laughs> you can subscribe to this by going to iTunes and um, and subscribing. Obviously, there you can also go to FindingMastery.net, and um, if you go to iTunes and yeah, you, you have the the interest to to give a review. It helps with um, people being able to easily find this podcast just if they didn't know that they were looking for it. <laughs> um, you can also go to uh, Twitter and ask some questions to Ashley and myself. Myself is at Michael Gervais uh, for Twitter. And then also on facebook.com forward slash finding mastery. Okay, so go ahead and check out Ashley's work uh, by Top Dog. I think that um, you want to give it to somebody as well. So buy the book and then buy a second copy to give to someone else. And uh, again, Ashley, thank you so much. All right. So once again, thank you, Ashley, for the time today. Thank you for um, all of us who are listening to this. And if you enjoyed this conversation and the learnings that come with it, there's a couple things maybe that you um, you could do is head over to iTunes, subscribe to Finding Mastery, tell somebody about it. If you write a review, it's uh, apparently it's an incredible uh, mechanism to just keep top of mind on iTunes, which helps uh, build a community and tribe around the concept of mastery. And um, you can find all of the information on findingmastery.net. You can hit us up at Twitter, which is at Michael Gervais, and on facebook.com, 
forward slash finding mastery. And you can also check out Ashley's work um, and have conversations with her on Twitter at Ashley Merriman. And again, that's A S H. L-E-Y-M-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N. All right, so let's um, let's see if we can put this in practice and, and bring people along this journey uh, in our own lives and, and even more globally. So um, check out Top Dog. I think you'll absolutely love it and um, hope you enjoyed this podcast. All right, I'm hopeful to hear from you and um, you know really drop some comments on how you're pursuing mastery in your own life or where you're getting glimpses of it or where you're where you're struggling around it. Let's let's keep the conversation moving as much as we possibly can and thank you deeply for for listening and being part of this. Have a great day. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously, and the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.